Tapiolan, a tone poem for large orchestra, is Sibelius's last major work. He wrote it in 1926, as he was round about 60 years old. And after that, because as I'm sure many of you know, he lived a very impressive old age, there were nearly 30 years in which almost nothing of any significance at all appeared in public. Now, I've chosen those words quite carefully because it turns out to be increasingly likely that Sibelius did complete an eighth symphony sometime in the early 1930s. There are witnesses who claim they even saw it. But if so, then it almost certainly ended up on a huge bonfire of his redundant works that he made later in life. Sibelius, alas, was a desperately self-critical man, the result of which is we've no idea what that Eighth Symphony was like. But Sibelius probably didn't think that Tapiola was going to be his last work. Even so... There's something extraordinarily final about the ending. There's a magnificent cadence, a huge rock-like crescendo, then a marvelously scored B major chord. It's a bit like a kind of huge Amen. Well, that last chord is wonderful enough just in its own as a sound. I remember a conductor friend of mine saying he thought it was one of the most wonderfully scored chords in all music. But it's even more effective when, as in today's program, we're going to hear it as the end of a musical journey. Well, what kind of journey? Well, Tapiola is not really like Sibelius's symphonies, his seven symphonies that he completed. In a way, they're all very obviously journeys, but they're a kind of heroic journey or a meditative journey, a definitely a kind of a progression from A to B. But Tapiola is something quite different, as we'll discover today. It's better explain the title first. Tapiola refers to the great forests to the north of Finland, the north country, the north lands. And Sibelius wrote a poem about this, which he included in the score. There's an English translation which I'll read. Widespread they stand, the Northland's dusky forests, ancient, mysterious, brooding, savage dreams. Within them dwells the forest's mighty god, and wood sprites in the gloom weave magic secrets. It sounds a bit quaint in English, some of that poem, I think. That image of the wood sprites suggests sort of Edwardian watercolours by someone like Arthur Rackham, the German original's much better Waldgeister. But it does capture, I think, the central image that Sibelius is trying to convey here, these huge northern forests, which are so unlike English woodland. I mean, there's something cosy and comforting about most English woods. You've got the undergrowth. You can't see very far. It's easy to hide in a, and lose yourself in that sense in an English forest. But these great northern forests, one of the first things you become aware of if you stand in them is an immense sense of space. 
there's, there's very little undergrowth, so you can see between the trunks of trees. Sometimes you feel you can see for miles in this strange, gloomy light. And you can feel very, very small indeed in a landscape like that. And I think that that's actually one of the crucial elements of this piece. Another feeling you, you get as well is that no matter how far you walk in one of these great northern forests, you hardly seem to have moved any distance at all. It's extraordinary. It can make you feel as if you and everything you've done is of incredibly little account. And I think that's one of the things which sets this off against the symphonies, because not only do Sibelius's symphonies travel, in a sense, from A to B, they travel especially in the harmonic sense. Now, if you take the symphony that Sibelius completed just before Tapiola, the seventh symphony, this is in one movement, like Tapiola, and there's a trombone theme, a famous trombone theme, that keeps recurring all the way through the piece, more or less in its original shape. But if you listen, you'll notice that the harmonies keep shifting and changing. It's always fluid. It's always progress. There's a feeling of rapid movement going on, both on the surface and underneath. I'll ask the BBC Philharmonic and our conductor Martin Bravins just to give us a passage now from towards the end of the Seventh Symphony. those harmonies change. I think you can feel it's like rapid movement from place to place. Now let's take a passage from Tapiola. This is marked Allegro Moderato, so this is quite fast, and there are lots of notes. But I wonder if this sounds to you as though it's moving in quite the same way as the passage that we've just heard. It doesn't to me. The bass shifts, if you listen to the bass line, but it keeps returning to the same notes, and it begins and ends on exactly the same pedal B. You may feel that there's a sort of bit of activity going on here, but that basically it ends in exactly the same place as it started from. This music is static. So there is a kind of activity going on in those rapid string figures in the foreground, but it's only in the foreground. In the background, that B, that final note we heard in the bass, remains absolutely static, fixed. 
Well, of course, the harmonies do change in Tapiola, and they do rotate around each other in a way, but they always seem to come back to that same point. That's one of the most fascinating things about Tapiola. That sense of immobility, of staticness, of a landscape that doesn't change no matter how much you move around in it, can be absolutely mesmeric. I'm actually going to try and give you another example of that from a passage nearer the start of Tapiola. We'll pick out, first of all, a kind of background figure. There's a beautiful effect Sibelius contrives here. All the strings play just two notes, E and F sharp, to a kind of dotted shifting rhythm. And they move up and down, but they move across each other. Now, we'll just start with what half of the first violins are playing. This is what they're playing. Now the other half of the first violins are doing the same sort of thing, but in the opposite direction, like this. Meanwhile, the second violins are playing exactly the same notes, but shifting up and down in a different way, so that you end up with the same notes being played, but by different instruments, a shifting kind of texture, like shifting lights or colours or shadows. And when you put all the violins together, it does create an extraordinary sort of effect of light, of a play of shadow, perhaps. Meanwhile, all the other strings, the cellos, the violas, and the double basses, are doing exactly the same kind of thing, but swapping over in different places. So this gives a different kind of pulsation to the sound. Meanwhile, the woodwind chatter chromatically. In fact, they cover all the 12 notes of the chromatic scale. But that string figuration, that shimmering string figuration in the background, keeps it absolutely static. figures and the absolutely static shifting string harmonies. I wonder if that's the music that Sibelius was thinking when he wrote about those wood sprites in the gloom weaving magic secrets. But there's something weird and eerie about that music at the same time. It's a passage I certainly find quite unsettling. And I wonder about the human element in this piece. I've heard this as described as a landscape entirely without human figures. Well, I can understand how somebody might conclude that kind of image of this piece, but I'm not sure it's quite true. If we go back to the opening, the passage we heard right at the beginning, there's something folk song-like in a kind of melancholy way about the string theme. But it's cut very short, as you hear at the end. It's like suddenly it runs out of breath in mid-phrase. And immediately it's answered by a kind of double echo effect. The same chord on the trumpets, and then the flutes. Mm -hmm. 
It's a wonderful bit of scoring there, isn't it? The way the flute chord rises out of, emerges out of the trumpet chord there, like an echo. But that folk song phrase makes a second attempt to establish itself after a pause. And now there are even more echo-like figures in answer on the woodwind. The first three notes, da da dum, just kind of repeat. It's as though this is a kind of a figure trying to sing in the middle of a landscape, and all that comes back at that figure are these echoes on the woodwind in the distance, sense of space. the timpani playing that one note B to which Tapiola continually returns as though it were almost fixed or frozen to it. It's a musical idea that suggests something maybe elemental and unchanging, something maybe in nature that was around long before human beings and may possibly survive long after them. So many of the elements in this piece seem to mock the littleness of that human song phrase that we heard just at the beginning. It's as though that little song phrase is a human being trying to assert itself and then finding itself drowned out, as it were, by the silence and the emptiness of the landscape around it. Well, not entirely surprising after that extraordinary evocation of an empty space that we've just heard. It's followed by a sense of almost vertiginous panic. And then that folk song phrase makes much more strenuous efforts to assert itself. <laughs> Well, now comes a really extraordinary passage. I think one of my favorite passages in all Sibelius. As you hear that little phrase, da 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 dum tum tum tum, and it attempts to go on asserting itself in the face of all this impassive, spacious, empty nature. You remember that phrase that the cellos played just at the very end of that extract, just now. Well, the woodwind at first, and then the violas, go on trying to sing that little folk song phrase over and over again. But as they do so, that cello figure rises through the orchestra and gradually swamps it. It's an extraordinary effect. I have a picture in my mind always when I think of it of a tiny human figure walking across a huge landscape. Maybe he's whistling to himself or humming to himself to try and keep his spirits up, but gradually that sense of space drowns this little song out until you're left with nothing. It's as though the immensity, the elemental immensity of nature just completely silences this attempt to sing this little human song in the middle.
remember a friend of mine coming up with a wonderful image to describe that passage. She said it reminded her of a, a camera very close in on a figure walking through a forest. Gradually the camera moves slowly back, higher and higher into the air, until gradually the figure shrinks to the point where it vanishes altogether, and all you can see is this immense forest scape. I think that describes that beautifully, as you can hear the last little echoes of that viola phrase disappearing into those string chords in the background. Well, a little later, that chant makes, as it were, its last appearance, and it's anything like its original form in Tapiola. But it's almost been dehumanized in the process, because now Sibelius flattens it out chromatically, harmonizes it eerily, and scores it in a very strange, dark, and rather sinister way, for, particularly for the low woodwind. It's reduced to a kind of elemental chant. It's like the chromatic moaning of a wind in a desolate landscape. So in that strange passage, which really is cut off just like that at the end, is the last echo, if you can imagine, of that little folk song phrase we heard at the beginning of the program. Dum, da 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 dum, tum, tum, tum. But kind of almost reduced to the point where it's lost its original features completely. A little later, there's another passage which again suggests voices in a way, but you know, you might be entitled to ask yourself what kind of voices Sibelius had in mind. First of all, we hear the cellos divided into four parts, like kind of chorale writing, just like the violas were in that passage with the figure disappearing into the wood earlier on. They're muted. And it sounds very remote in effect. I don't know whether Sibelius had remoteness in space or in time in mind, but certainly it does feel strangely distant, this kind of choral texture. That chant-like chorale figure is passed between the various sections of the strings, like independent choirs. Yet at the same time, running through this passage is another extraordinary sound, glassy, icy string harmonics. It's the effect you get if you bow a string, and at the same time lightly touch it at a crucial point with the finger. You get this kind of disembodied, ghostly tone. And the harmonics are always on one of two notes, F-sharp, or B, that central pedal note that dominates so much of this great musical landscape. Let's ask the strings first of all to play just the harmonics. As that chant-like choral figure is passed among the different sections of the string orchestra, those harmonics keep coming back 
just on those two notes. It's like they're holding the music, or you might even say freezing it to be. It's, again, the effect of extraordinary staticness, although the song continues to sing and move in the background. It's always this static figure, like a kind of drone. Now comes a passage that feels almost like a revelation. Do you remember that line in Sibelius's poem that I quoted at the top of the program about therein stands the forest's mighty god? Now this is not the Christian god that Sibelius is thinking of at this point. In fact, the title Tapiola, the title of the piece, refers to Tapio, the ancient Finnish god of the forests. Tapiola means the dwelling place of Tapio. Now, whether Sibelius had a real deity in mind, or whether he was thinking of this in terms of a kind of metaphor for the awe-inspiring power of nature, it's hard to say. But you do get a glimpse of something transcendent and terrifying as the brass and timps get hold of that last string phrase and transform it into something very different. I said transcendent and terrifying, I think, for a very particular reason. Because I don't know when has anyone ever asked you what piece of music or what part of a piece of music particularly embodies a certain emotion for you. But if anybody were to ask me where I felt in the whole of music was the most powerful expression of sheer naked terror, well, I think I'd probably choose the final climax of Tapiola. There's a quality in Sibelius's music that's often described as wind in trees, and it's usually associated with the kind of various shimmering tremolando patterns that you hear in his music. He may have got the idea from the famous Forest Murmurs section of Wagner's opera Siegfried, although he transforms it into something quite different. 
But until very near the end of Tapiola, there are no string tremolos at all. Lots of amazing effects, atmospheric effects, effects of space, gloom, lots of playing on our emotions in incredibly somber and strange ways, but absolutely no picturesque rustling leaves, no nice forest murmurs in this forest at all. Sibelius keeps his tremolando effects back for the climax, and then the effect is far from picturesque. The first thing we hear are the violins fluttering on a major third. The two notes here are A and C sharp, in other words, poised on either side of that recurring pedal B. They're muted at first, but then one by one, the violins take off the mutes and the color changes gradually. It's a bit like a kind of livid color spreading through the sky before a storm. Then the rest of the strings gradually enter and the fluttering spreads out like a rising wind. This builds and builds and it rises quite alarmingly like a wind really building up until eventually the violins reach the top of their range and it screams like the sound of a typhoon in treetops. As the storm mounts, we prepare for the climactic return of the theme associated with Tapio himself on the full brass and timpani. we have the awestruck human response to that vision. Suggestion of the original chant on the woodwind, but muted now. And then finally the orchestra rises in a great outcry as all sense of tonality dissolves. Well, as I hope you'll discover when we hear the whole piece in a minute or two, in context, that is a truly extraordinary passage, overwhelming, awe-inspiring musical climax, one of the most awe-inspiring things in all Sibelius. But I think there's a message that Sibelius is trying to convey here. This is my intuition, let's say, which explains possibly the Amen-like quality of the very ending of the piece. We've seen nature at its most terrifying and most 
frightening, it's most intimidating in this piece. And many, I'm sure of us, who've moved out of the safety of modern civilization and been into a really remote place, a desert or the Arctic Circle or a great northern forest, for instance, have probably experienced that sense of really being cut off almost from the things that help you feel who you are. It can be an incredibly disturbing experience. But there's something about the passage that we've heard that really strongly reminds me of a passage from a story by Edgar Allan Poe, which, interestingly enough, is also set in the far northern latitudes, far up the coast of Norway. It's a story called Descent into the Maelstrom. It's about a sailor who, in an appalling accident, gets caught and sucked into the vortex of a gigantic whirlpool off the coast of Norway. And this is what he says, and I think this is a truly visionary passage, which always makes me think of this piece. It may appear strange, but when we were in the very jaws of the gulf, I felt more composed than when we were only approaching it. I began to reflect how magnificent a thing it was to die in such a manner, and how foolish it was in me to think of so paltry a consideration as my own individual life in the view of so wonderful a manifestation of God's power. Well, I wonder if Sibelius himself is trying to convey a similar feeling here, a spiritual reaction to the awesomeness of nature. That would certainly explain the almost miracle-like quality of the final warm B major chord we hear at the end, and that huge rock-like Amen, the final cadence that we hear at the end of the piece. It's as though the spectator has been enriched by this humbling, almost crushing experience of nature in the roar, not so much belittled by it as liberated by it spiritually. But first comes this sound. This icy bare fifth on the top strings here. Now comes the huge rock-like Amen, first chord. And then the men, the resolution, with the icy chord on top. And the warm B major chord in the lower strings on the bottom. And that, believe it or not, is almost the only solid conventional tonal chord in the entire piece. It's as though having gone through this extraordinary journey of the mind, or even non-journey across a vast space, Sibelius has reached a sense of harmony at the end, in its purest and simplest and warmest sense, as though in the process he's also discovered a more solid sense of self after the crushing experience of nature at its most pitiless. Don't forget that for the romantics, the idea of the word sublime meant not something as we mean it today, generally calm and reassuring and uplifting, but something terrifying, which in a way nevertheless puts you into perspective. I don't know whether any of you have had this experience, but certainly myself visiting Iceland recently, there was something about being in the face of nature, such awesome power, 
and such incredible elemental strength that makes you feel very small, small in a way that's actually not so much alarming as liberating. It's almost a comfort to feel that there are forces so much greater than you at work in nature. And I think possibly as well it can help one even come to terms with such issues as your own mortality. Maybe that's what Sibelius was also thinking of at 60. And maybe also possibly why, having completed this amazing epic work, he felt that he had possibly no more to say. We don't know. If only we could see that Eighth Symphony, then perhaps we could have a, a better guess at that. But anyway, those are my reactions to that piece. If you have any questions for me or for Martin, or if you feel that what you're hearing when you're listening to this music is different from what I've said and would like to say so, then please do so, because our person with the roving mic is coming amongst us now. So has anybody anything they'd like to ask or say at this point about this music? The first time I ever heard Tapiola was in the Royal Air Force in 1952. Mm when we had a, a camp music circle at Hereford and there were about three presenters and the presenter this evening played it and the heating broke down in the, <laughs> in the hut and it was, it was November so you can imagine what it felt like to hear Sibelius's tapiola and it, I never liked it at, until I heard it in proper surroundings <laughs> but I also think how like the Seventh Symphony it is in construction. You don't really feel, as you, having heard Tapioli, you can hear anything else. You could have followed it with anything else that would have outclassed it in any way. I do think you've got a real point here, definitely, that the Seventh Symphony and the Tapiola are kind of like two panels of the same big diptych, in a way. The one is the summation of everything he was trying to achieve in symphonic form, and the other is the summation of everything he was trying to achieve in tone poems. Although you can definitely remember particular sections, if you were asked to kind of put your hand up at the point where one section ends and another section begins, it's almost impossible. You know, and, and sometimes, like we, we, we played a performance recently of the Seventh Symphony, there are passages where it almost seems to be moving in two different speeds at the same time. We had the same thing in Tapiolo, where we had the very active movement in the strings while the basses are hardly moving at all in the background. And Sibelius, I think, is one of the most incredible masters of movement, just the whole sense of how something moves. People often describe his music as organic, but the way that a section dovetails into the next. It becomes the next section so that you can't say where it exactly happens. I mean, I'd have loved to have been able to spend more time on that today, but there's just so much in this piece you can pick out, and I wanted to pry and bring out what I thought was the main strand. As a friend of mine said, listening to a Sibelius piece sometimes is like watching a speeded-up film of a plant growing from a seed into its full blossom at the end. You can never say that there's a particular point on the process where now it's a plant with leaves, now it's a plant with flowers, now it's becoming a tree. It, it's all perfectly organic and smooth, and it's a question of sort of perpetual becoming. But I love the, the, the idea of the heating breaking down in the middle of Tapiola because he wrote the Second Symphony when he, uh, he started the Second Symphony during a visit to Italy. But would you believe the idea of Sibelius in Italy, the first time he was there, the first morning, he woke up and found the water had frozen in the washstand next to him on the on the table, which is something that almost never happens in Italy. Somehow or other, the idea of Sibelius being there and the temperature drops about 10 degrees. <laughs> Anybody else anything they'd like? Yes, gentlemen over here. You said that it was a piece for large orchestra, mm. but although they've had different parts to play even within sections, there's not a lot of variety of instruments. Is this fairly typical of Sibelius? 
Sibelius himself called it a tone poem for large orchestra. It is large by Sibelius's standards, but actually one of the most fascinating things about Sibelius is that no matter how often you talk about rock-like or granite, powerful sounds in Sibelius, and some of his brass writing particularly can be very powerful, it's not a big orchestra at all, certainly. And if you look at some of the symphonies, like for instance number three and four, they're scored for the same kind of orchestra that even Schumann or Beethoven might have used, and yet they managed to make this incredible craggy sound. Even here, this is not a complete normal symphonic brass section, even though it sounds so big. There's no tuba for a start. Sibelius seems to have developed a bit of an inhibition about the tuba after the second symphony, which could have been possibly because of the sound that the tuba player made in those extraordinary porumps in the main theme and the finale. I don't know why. But he actually pairs down the orchestra in many of his works. He was partly reacting against the enormous symphonic canvases that were being created by Mahler towards the end of the first decade of the 20th century, or Schoenberg's Guralida or Scriabin in the poem of Ecstasy. He liked the idea of creating a big effect with tiny means. But even so, there are more color instruments here than they are used in any of the symphony. If you think about the bass clarinet, the contrabassoon, the cor anglais, that's more unusual colorful woodwind instruments than appear in any of the symphonies. And at the same time, although he doesn't use like things like harps or glockenspiels as he does in his tone poem, The Oceanides, it's still bigger and richer in its composition than what he's normally used to. And certainly that the effect is of something very powerful. But there was something that Sibelius enjoyed, obviously, about creating the effect of power with very small and limited means. Maybe he found that stimulating to his imagination. I don't know, but I think he did. Well, plenty for me to think about there, and I hope for you now as we hear the performance of Sibelius's last tone poem, Tapiola. It's played for us now by the BBC Philharmonic guest leader Peter Thomas with the conductor Martin Brabins. <laughs> 